The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Dad, what is this? This week's issue of the news report, I expect. You know what I'm talking about, the item at the bottom of the first page. Ambassador Hendricks and the drug cartel, you know it isn't true. Do I? Research checked this out with three different sources. These allegations are completely unsubstantiated. Unsubstantiated, maybe, but true or false, the story has merit. You can't do this. Victoria, we're in a war with these people. The only way to beat them is to attack and expose. Attack and expose. I'll leave the pussyfooting to the politicians. My name is on the masthead as associate editor. I can't be a party to this. Sorry. Victoria. Victoria, wait. Victoria. Victoria. I'm sorry. You're absolutely right. Does that mean the item's out? Until I can have it reinvestigated. Satisfactory. I suppose so. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, May 30th, 2019. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be It seems we're dealing with the issue of fake news on an increasing frequency in the news, and with governments around the world intent on curbing what they call disinformation. This issue is not likely to go away soon. We'll explore the issue more right after I remind you that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and follow us on SoundCloud. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media links, our archive broadcasts, and of course, where we encourage you to offer your financial support and in so doing, become part of our effort to enlighten others about the true nature of freedom and capitalism. The platforms are failing their users and they're failing our citizens. They have to step up in a major way to counter disinformation. And if they don't, we will hold them to account and there will be meaningful financial consequences. You know, to hear such words coming out of the mouth of any leader of a Western nation, let alone a Canadian leader, is unconscionable and frightening to me. Yet there it is. Trudeau wants to counter disinformation. Or to put it another way, Trudeau wants to disinform a nation. A concept I'll explain in further detail later on in today's show. But first, here's Just Right contributor Salim Mansour, who this past Monday released a statement on this very subject on Just Right's YouTube channel, from which this excerpt and others to follow has been taken. If we wish to understand the thinking behind the politics of Justin Trudeau and his liberals, and more broadly that of the globalist left who are determined to subvert and wreck the West's foundational principles of freedom and democracy, we need to be familiar with a textbook on tactics and politics. This is Rules for Radicals, written by Chicago-born Marxist and community organizer Saul Alinsky. He was a mentor of a long line of Marxist and communist activists on the left in American politics. 
and his influence reached right into the White House during the Obama presidency. Rahm Emanuel, Obama's chief of staff in the White House and later mayor of Chicago, was known to cite Elensky's rule and one of his favorites was never to waste a crisis. In other words, as Zelensky taught, every event or tragedy needs to be exploited as a means to advance the left's agenda against individual rights and freedoms for collectivist or socialist ends that otherwise would be politically unattainable. Keeping in mind Elinsky's rules, we can understand and explain how Trudeau and his liberals operate. They went ahead, for instance, in adopting Motion 103 on Islamophobia in March 2017, despite widespread disapproval following the shooting of Muslims at prayer in a Quebec City mosque two months earlier. In other words, never waste a crisis, and in this case, exploit a tragedy resulting from the criminality of a mentally disturbed individual, Alexandra Bissonnet, to shut down any legitimate discussion of Islamist violence and terrorism that continue to plague the world by invoking Islamophobia or hate speech. Similarly, following the horrific shooting by a deranged Australian, Brenton Tehran, that resulted in the murder of 51 Muslims at prayer in two mosques he attacked in Christchurch, New Zealand, we now have Trudeau's response presented as Canada's digital charter. What we're witnessing is Trudeau exploiting an immense crime that shook the conscience of people in New Zealand and beyond to advance his liberal and left-wing agenda of further crippling a present already heavily constricted principle of free speech. So, when we look past Trudeau's platitudes over universal access and transparency to craft a digital policy in the new age of social media, what is evident is a concerted effort to shut down and eliminate conservative speech from the public arena. The vast majority of Canadians, I believe, would have agreed with the parliamentary motion following the shooting in Quebec City condemning bigotry and discrimination against Muslims and or any other group of Canadians based on ethnicity, gender or religion, in contrast to the Liberal Motion 103 that seeks to quell Islamophobia without defining it and which, in effect, constricts freedom of speech in Canada. Likewise, we could all agree with a digital charter that protects the universality and accessibility of all Canadians without discrimination to participate in the digital side of democracy, provided they do not incite violence. However, in keeping true to the Elenskyite mode of operation displayed in the passage of Motion 103 deceptively advertises merely a symbolic condemnation of bigotry. Trudeau's digital charter is disguised to mislead Canadians in believing it will protect their digital rights when, in effect, it is designed to do the opposite. We'll hear more from Salim as our show progresses, and we'll also get into the intent and particulars of Trudeau's digital charter shortly, but not before I set the stage with this editorial. I found in the London Free Press on April 6th of this year. Headline reads, Canada doing little to stem growth in hate. 
with a subheading, Hate is a National Crisis, Warren Craig and Mark Kielberger, who happen to be co-founders of the WE movement, W-E, which includes WE Charity, Me to WE Social Enterprise, and WE Day. Wow, talk about a pair of collectivists or what. Quote, In 2015, between 80 and 100 white supremacist groups were spreading hate across Canada, numbers that any rational person would find far too high. Now, just four years later, experts say Canada's hate groups are approaching 300. If that doesn't scare you, it should. A few weeks ago, Canadians joined the world as it mourned the 50 innocent lives taken at two Christchurch New Zealand mosques in an attack reportedly motivated, in part, by a 2017 mosque shooting in Quebec City. Hate crimes in Canada have increased nearly 50% during those last two years. Victims are mostly Muslims and Jews, although indigenous peoples also are frequent targets, as in Thunder Bay, now called the hate crime capital of Canada for its rates of racist vandalism, assaults, and murders. If this was any other type of crime, we'd be calling it a national crisis, said Barbara Perry, director of the Center of Hate, Bias, and Extremism at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology. While Canadian media covered the attack in New Zealand, few outlets brought the story home and asked, what is being done to stop the rise of white supremacy and hate crimes in our own cities? It seems the answer is nothing much. In response to the Quebec City attack, the House of Commons Heritage Committee called for a national strategy against racism and hate crimes. Their report released last year offered 30 recommendations, including training for media pundits and politicians about how their portrayals of certain religious or racial groups could contribute to a climate of hate. It called for better enforcement of laws to prevent racist fake news and more resources for police to tackle hate crimes. None of these recommendations have been adopted nationally. A big problem lies in Canadian cities where police don't recognize right-wing extremism as a true threat, instead treating it like a minor disturbance. Laws that do exist often aren't enforced. Though Canadian law forbids civilians from paramilitary training, the white supremacist group Three Percenters do it openly, posting photos and videos of weapons drills on social media. None of its members have ever been successfully prosecuted. Beyond enforcement, some laws come with cumbersome restrictions. Hate crimes are among the few offenses that require prosecutors to seek permission from the Attorney General of Canada in order to take a case to court. And the repeal of hate speech laws in 2013 removed a key tool for stopping the poisonous rhetoric that instigates acts of violence. People need to be aware of how vicious the hate movement is right now, Warren Perry. Canada must strengthen its laws and remove legal barriers that discourage prosecution. Hate is still here, and it's not a disease that will cure itself. It's a national crisis, and we need to act. End quote. Wow. <laughs> this whole commentary was nothing but a spewing of hate. Hatred of white people and hatred of the right. And it's just amazing how, even if there were 300 white supremacist groups, how none of them are ever on the left. You notice that? <laughs> 300 hate groups and they're all white and all right? What are the odds? Personally, I don't believe a word of it. I also find it suspicious that in this entire commentary, only one such hate group, quote-unquote, was explicitly named or identified, and I have to confess, I never heard of them, nor have I heard of any of their crimes. 
But this is the psychological and mental environment in which idiotic ideas like a digital charter or the subsidy of desirable news outlets spawn from. And before I say another word, let's be very clear about something. There is no such thing as a hate crime. That is a complete fiction. Now there are crimes motivated by hate, motivated by love, motivated by jealousy, motivated by greed, and a whole range of emotions that are irrelevant to how society should deal with the crimes themselves. But having, feeling, or expressing any of these emotions is not a crime in and of itself, nor should it ever be. Now consider what's been said here in the pages of a so-called mainstream media. Quote, in Thunder Bay, now called the hate crime capital of Canada for its rates of racist vandalism, assaults, and murders. If this was any other type of crime, we'd be calling it a national crisis. A big problem lies in Canadian cities where police don't recognize right-wing extremism as a true threat, instead treating it like a minor disturbance, end quote. So what we've just been told is that because actual crimes like vandalism, assault, and murder have the adjective hate placed in front of them, apparently police refuse to act or investigate. Does that make any sense to you? The number of absurd associations being made here is ridiculous. Apparently vandalism, assault, and murder are treated like a minor disturbance because that's just right-wing extremism. Jeez, you know, I don't even want to get into the whole left and right debate, but I always have to chuckle when trying to picture those on the true right committing assault and murder in the cause of individualism, freedom, and capitalism. My lord, if these guys are thinking that right-wing extremism is akin to fascism, then they better give their heads a shake because that kind of extremism exists entirely on the left, and we've covered that in excruciating detail on past broadcasts. Quote, hate is still here, and it's not a disease that will cure itself. It's a national crisis, and we need to act, end quote. Wow, well, hate is not a disease. It's an emotion. It's a value judgment. It could be rational, or it could be irrational. Either way, it's not a crime, it's not a disease, and the only national crisis we face are those who seek to eradicate what they call hate. Talk about a fake agenda. They're the real fascists, and they're on the left. Now, to give us some background on their fake agenda, on this side of our upcoming bumper, we'll hear from Dan Dix of Press for Truth from his May 17 YouTube report on Trudeau's digital charter, while on the return side of the bumper, we'll be hearing from Ezra Levant, the Rebel Media's May 24th update on the same issue. This is Dan Dix here, reporting for Press for Truth with breaking news. Justin Trudeau is in Paris, France today at the Christ Church Call to Action meeting, and he has just made an announcement in the wake of this meeting that Canada is going to be launching a digital charter to combat online hate speech. And not only that, he's going to be going after the major companies that apparently don't comply. This just out from CBC, Trudeau warns of meaningful financial consequences for social media giants that don't combat hate speech. A new digital charter will dictate how the country will combat hate speech, misinformation, and online electoral interference in Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told the technology conference in Paris on Thursday. So what exactly does he want these companies to do, and what are these companies planning on doing? 
Well, here's in a, a statement uh, officially re uh, released by Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and Twitter. This is a joint statement in support of the tri uh, Christchurch call. It says the terrorist attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand in March were a horrifying tragedy. And so it is right that we come together, resolute in our commitment, to ensure we are doing all we can to fight the hatred and extremism that led to terrorist violence. Now, what do they say about how they're going to deal with what led to it? Well, this is where it gets troubling for me, guys. It says here, combating hate and bigotry. We commit to working collaboratively across industry to attack the root causes of extremism and hate online. You see what we're getting at here? Hatred and bigotry is the root causes here of, of hatred online, and that's what they're going to be after going after here, guys. This isn't looking good. Um, this includes providing greater support for relevant research with an emphasis on the impact of online hate on online discrimination and violence and supporting capacity and capability of NGOs working to challenge hate and promote pluralism and respect online. So this is not looking good for me, guys, when we know that they're looking for hatred and bigotry, apparently, working with Facebook to combat so-called online extremism. Well, you guys may recall that I was just kicked off of Facebook not long ago, just uh, in uh, October of last year. My Press for Truth page was uh, removed from the site. 350,000 followers just vanished in the blink of an eye because they didn't like my ideology, they didn't like my political opinion. And now you got guys like uh, Paul Joseph Watson and, and people like Laura Loomer and, you know, uh, uh, McInnes and, and Yiannopoulos and all these sorts of guys who are falling left, right, and center as these tech companies are showing what they think is extremist content. And they're starting to just clamp down on conservative voices that go against the status quo. That's what this is all about. I think maybe that's why the United States also said they're not going to be signing on to this thing. You may have seen this. U.S. says it will not join the Christchurch call against online terror. Um, the White House said on Wednesday it supported the Christchurch call's aims, but not. it's not in a position to join, uh, citing the need for freedom of speech. And, uh, you know, i got to give it to him. President Trump makes a, a good point with that one. And on the same day of this, he went ahead and did this. The White House launches a tool to report censorship on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. So he's not joining in with their ridiculous propaganda. He launched his own tool to help counter this stuff, which is it's funny. It's entertaining. Uh, on Wednesday, the White House launched a new tool for people to use if they feel they've been wrongfully censored, banned, or suspended on social media platforms like Facebook and Twitter. And it's currently only available for Americans. Um, so, although it's just kind of funny, it's probably not going to lead to anything, but perhaps it is a step in the right direction because Canada is clearly going completely the wrong way. Look at what Justin Trudeau posted on Twitter two days ago, he wrote, social media platforms must be held accountable for the hate speech and disinformation we see online. And if they don't step up, there will be consequences. We launched Canada's new digital charter today to guide our decisions. Learn more about it here.
So, so let's look at what's coming now. I showed you a glimpse of this last week when Trudeau flew to Paris to meet with New Zealand's Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, who is clearly in some sort of post-traumatic stress from the mass shooting on the mosque in Christchurch. And, and fair enough, but she's been traumatized and she's just banning everything. She's lashing out. I think she's gone a bit mad, banning guns, banning free speech, banning things on the internet. I don't know if it's just the psychological stress of what happened or if it was a long-standing desire on her part, but she is literally doing what the terrorist himself said he hoped would happen, provoking massive change in public policy through his violence. That's not good. Now, in a sense, other than the five million souls who live in New Zealand, it's a great little country, it's our, they're our friends and our allies, but it's smaller in population than Toronto, and it's, it's so far away. But it's our problem in that her overreaction, her censorship, is being exported around the world with the cooperation of tech companies themselves who co-sponsored this censorship mission by her. That's the creepy part. They're all in on it. Here's the digital charter page that he mentioned in that tweet. Now, just scroll down here. So much of this is buzzwords and gobbledygook from clueless politicians and bureaucrats and lobbyists and scammers who have no idea what they're doing. Look at this chart, for example. Current waves, future waves, new ecosystems. Who, who talks like that? I mean, come on, look at this. Look, you see that there? Uh, super cluster initiative. <laughs> look at this. Digital engagement lead. Hey, guys, here's your digital engagement leaders for your digital charter. Sorry, that's not a thing. That's, that's just not a thing. That's a fake way to milk a stupid government with huge consulting contracts. Hey, we're digital engagement specialists. And, and look at the bizarre identity politics here. What women said, what young people said, what immigrants said, what gay black people in wheelchairs said. It's all baffle gab like this. Makes no sense, but it gets government money. But if you scroll all the way down this document, buried under tons of manure, you get to the hidden point of it. Do you see this? It says principles. And you see down near the bottom, number eight, strong democracy. Number nine, free from hate and violent extremism. Number 10, strong enforcement and real accountability. And I think I found the needle in the haystack. It's really just an excerpt from that New Zealand censorship plan. Look at this, I'm gonna read the whole passage because it's just very small in this mountain of manure. Governments and major online service providers have made voluntary collective commitments to prevent people from abusing the internet for violent extremist and terrorist purposes. These commitments include increasing transparency and accountability in expressing community standards, terms of service, and content moderation on the part of online service providers, building more inclusive, resilient communities to counter violent radicalization, enforcing laws that stop the production and dissemination of terrorist and extremist content online, and encouraging media to apply ethical rules when reporting on terrorist events to avoid amplifying violent extremist and terrorist content. We're given an outline, new community standards. Is that the new rules that cause, say, Paul Joseph Watson, uh, a very popular mainstream conservative commentator, to be banned from Facebook? Paul Joseph Watson is about as violent as a little lamb. So what was the new rule that had him banned? Was it Justin Trudeau who called for him to be banned? Was it his own Prime Minister, Theresa May, over there in the UK? Who in this secret meeting asked for what? 
content moderation. Does that mean silencing voices that criticize Trudeau? Why, why would the government have a hand in that? What's that got to do with terrorism? In fact, isn't the point of media to hold governments to account? Why does the government hold media to account? And, and why were the media companies compelled to go along with it? And ethical rules for reporting, whose ethics? Justin Trudeau's? He said that the report about his corruption and SNC-Lavalin and Jody Wilson-Raybould, he said it was untrue. He said that was unethical reporting. Turns out he was the unethical liar. Would his new rules have shut down that report about him? It is absurd that in an environment where conservatives are already systematically deplatformed, despite not violating any law, that the tech giants will now be pressured to significantly increase their censorship. My friends, the supply in our society of Nazis and white supremacists working out of some dilapidated basements of run-down tenement buildings doesn't come close to meeting the liberal demand for justifying legislations to shut down free speech. And yet Trudeau's unstated objective is not hidden. His purpose is censorship of conservatives and nationalists unwilling to abide by the requirements of political correctness that liberals and left-wing authoritarians insist upon, contrary to our long-cherished tradition of freedom of speech. Of course, one of the major social media culprits with regard to the deplatforming of voices on the right is unquestionably Facebook. They've earned it. <laughs> but there are a lot more issues facing Facebook than its own deplatforming policies as I learned from this sampling of articles from the mainstream media, I was kind of surprised by some of these. This one from the London Free Press of last December 6. I'm done with Facebook for a series of reasons, wrote Calgary journalist Naomi Lakritz. Consider her reasons in light of the ethics test that Trudeau would want social media to exercise that we just heard about and the kinds of decisions that have come from social media thus far. I quote, Facebook recently banned a good friend of mine for 24 hours. Her crime? When she responded to some anti-Semitic remarks some had posted, she violated Facebook's community standards. Remember, these are the community standards that were being cited and insisted upon in Trudeau's digital charter. But to continue, what did she say that so ruffled Facebook's feathers that they punished her for it? She told the anti-Semite to, quote, crawl back under your rock, serpent, end quote. That's tame when you compare it with what the original poster said, but he wasn't banned. Not surprising. I've previously reported to Facebook certain postings calling for death to the Jews. The response I always got was that such a posting does not violate Facebook community standards and would not be removed. Really? Facebook thinks it's perfectly okay to incite people to kill Jews? Think about that. That's just one more reason why I'm glad I'm no longer on Facebook, she writes. That Mark Zuckerberg, who is Jewish, would allow such things is disgraceful. There are other reasons I'm happy to be done with Facebook. I was tired of having telephone or email conversations with friends and then seeing ads appear on my Facebook page for whatever we had been discussing. It's creepy. Then there was the troubling comment from Facebook's early days that Zuckerberg is still trying to live down. He called Facebook users dumb Fs 
for trusting him with their personal data. Does he still feel that way? Who knows? End quote. The writer concludes by observing how a Facebook-free life is amazing, but what now concerns us today is that this is one of the social media groups currently in bed with various Western governments around the world, including Canada and its Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Think about that. And the picture becomes even more complicated when you consider the ongoing dispute between Facebook and Canada's Privacy Commissioner, as reported in the National Post on April 26. I wasn't really aware of this. Here's the headline. Facebook rejected privacy guidance. Commissioner taking company to court, read the headlines of Stuart Thompson's report. Quote, a long-running standoff between Facebook and Canada's privacy commissioner is heading to federal court after a scathing report from the privacy watchdog said the company outright rejected guidance that would bring it into compliance with Canada's privacy laws. Privacy Commissioner Daniel Theron said the situation also highlights the lack of enforcement tools at his disposal. His office does not have the ability to levy fines or order companies to produce evidence, unlike other privacy watchdogs around the world. With no deterrent, Theron said it allows companies to simply disregard his rulings. In effect, Theron said Facebook is saying... Quote, thank you very much for your conclusion on matters of law, but we actually disagree and we'll actually continue as we were, end quote. It's completely unacceptable, Theron said Thursday. The report, written in conjunction with the Privacy Commissioner for British Columbia, says that Facebook failed to get meaningful consent from users installing third-party apps and from users who would be affected by apps installed by their friends, a key feature exploited in the Cambridge Analytica breach the report reads. The Privacy Commissioner's report also said that Facebook didn't safeguard user data and shifted accountability to users and app makers. The sum of these measures resulted in a privacy protection framework that was empty, the report says. Facebook said it took the investigation seriously and is surprised that the Privacy Commissioner is taking it to the courts. The Privacy Commissioner's report came on the heels of news Wednesday that Facebook was expecting a fine ranging from U.S. $3 billion to U.S. $5 billion as a result of an investigation by the Federal Trade Commission in the United States, end quote. Ouch. <laughs> and as if that weren't enough, then there's this item from the May 4th Washington Post report with the headline, Trump Jr. Accuses Facebook of Censorship. Far-right users out of Washington, quote, Donald Trump Jr. on Friday charged that Facebook had engaged in a purposeful and calculated silencing of conservatives online, a day after the social networking giant permanently banned far-right figures and organizations, including Alex Jones, the host of InfoWars. While Trump Jr. did not mention Jones or others by name, the president's eldest son broadly said that unspecified actions by Facebook and the rest of the big tech monopoly men should terrify everyone. It appears they're taking their censorship campaign to the next level, Trump Jr. tweeted. Trump Jr.'s tweet marked his latest criticism of tech companies on grounds that they silence conservatives, a charge that Facebook, Google, and Twitter long have denied. Unbelievable. President Donald Trump similarly has accused popular social networking sites of exhibiting political bias, and he's repeatedly threatened to regulate Silicon Valley in response, end quote. It's amazing that they deny these things, considering we know from personal experience that it is so. 
I mean, we can't even boost our shows just right to, to the United States because of their censorship policies. I mean, <laughs> we've got it in writing. So as you can see, Facebook's having a lot of problems of its own, which makes its current collusion with other social media and governments all the more sinister. Sounds even more scary to me than it really should be. Now, at this point in our conversation, I think it's time to flip the coin and look at the other side of Trudeau's grand media plan. So to do that, here's CKTBAM 610's Tom McConnell, who introduces us to that side of the coin. Uh, I want to get to a story about the government helping out the news media. And I don't really think it's required. I think there is a certain shift that has happened in the news media in regards to a business model that we see some companies adjusting for. Maybe we have to put other protections in place, but I don't know about setting up a tax credit and then a council to approve. It looks troublesome to the outsider and certainly suspicious. You're like, really? That group? You're going to allow that group to approve who gets money from the liberal government. For instance, Unifor, a union who has lobbied on behalf of the federal government in the last election in some areas, is now going to be on the board to approve who gets this money. How did this pass the smell test? How did no one think? That's a little concerning. But again, how do we protect media? How do we protect media? Because this is a business model. But the government's own policies itself undermine media. The government could do a lot to make a more robust and healthy media environment with some of the policies, and we can borrow. We can look to our two closest allies when it comes to culture. Canada's a great mix of British and American culture, and we lessen our ties to British culture but as we strengthen our ties to American culture and also import cultural products from around the world. But when we look at how strong news media is in Britain and in the United States and how robust it is, we can take examples from both of those markets and apply it to Canada. Why we don't? Who knows? We're scared to because maybe we'll think, oh, that's an American model. Or Canadian consumers are also fearful of what will actually make a better product. One of the things about, and I once gave a presentation on this, one of the things about bias in print journalism, let's say, is you're free to read it or not, but you're also free to read the opposite. You want to counter bias, but this is the problem. We don't. You want to counter bias? Read the opposite. You don't like the Toronto Star? Read it. Read the Toronto Star, then read the National Post. You'll get two separate arguments in a lot of cases. Read the opposite, but we don't. We live in echo chambers. We want to be reaffirmed. I want my ideas validated. I only want to talk to people who think like I do and make me think I'm on the right path. We often don't seek out the opposite opinion and test our own feelings and thoughts on, why do I feel that way? Do I really believe that? Why do I hold this belief? So even if journalist is biased, we are all biased. Seek out the opposite. That one of the papers just coming down? Yes, it is. 
Well, there won't be no truth in it. Just poison. That paper comes from New York. Let's hear what it has to say, Mr. Cartwright. We don't want to hear no reading from a northern paper. That right? What's the matter with you, Rebs? You afraid to hear the truth? Just hold on. If my Paul wants to read the paper, I, I reckon that's what he's going to do. Now, you just simmer down a little bit. Well, the, uh, the news, uh, has been mostly about one thing. That's, uh, that's a speech that uh, Mr. Lincoln made last month in Springfield. I guess, uh, what he, what he wanted to say can be found right in the end of it here. Which is the, uh, the agitation has not only not ceased, but augmented. In my opinion, says, it will not cease until a crisis shall have been reached and passed. And he says, a house. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Begging your pardon, Mr. Cartwright. What's all that mean? Well, Mr. Lincoln saying that people come together because of the things they have in common, like, uh, well, like friendship and love. And, and uh, I guess it means that when they get so blinded by the personal beliefs that hate creeps in, well, then violence can't be too far behind. Oh, that's nothing but northern lies. They ain't lies, neither. A nation ain't a nation if the states don't stick together. Wait a minute, Luke. What if a state don't want to stick together? Then we fight to make them stick together. For those of you who would like to have the news read from a southern paper, I have here the Charleston Journal. Mr. Lincoln's speech has been hailed as a southern victory. It is generally acknowledged that the first ten lines of that speech have already defeated his bid for election. Here was Mr. Lincoln's reply to that opinion. If it is decreed that I should go down because of this speech, then let me go down linked to the truth. Let me die in advocacy of what is just and right. You trying to tell us that a southern paper would write a thing like that? If you can read, see for yourself. The South would never praise the thinking of a man like Abe Lincoln. A man who honestly knows what he believes and has courage enough to act on it is a man deserving of praise from all men. You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. You know, it's remarkable how the issues of fake news, media bias, and fears of hate leading to violence have been part of the matrix of history in every era, as we just heard in that audio bite from Bonanza. Now, there were a couple of points made by Tom McConnell that I wanted to address. He's quite correct in pointing out how the government's policies itself undermine the media. These policies could include everything from the irrational regulations put out by Canada's CRTC to the funding of Canada's state television and radio broadcaster, the CBC. But Tom's argument that we live in echo chambers and we want to be reaffirmed and and validated is a bit of a two-edged sword for me. There's another side to that story. 
It's often been my experience that people who find themselves in so-called echo chambers aren't there just to have their own views affirmed or validated. They're there to learn how to better express themselves regarding their own views, or even how to better understand their views in terms and perspectives that may not be their own. Could be economic, could be political, could be moral. Personal perspectives, as experienced by others. It's a never-ending journey but not one that needs to occur in an echo chamber. And you know what? I often have my own viewpoints on the right reaffirmed and validated by those I hear on the left. And I'm always looking for leftist viewpoints to help me demonstrate why they should be rejected. And when Tom McConnell quite correctly suggests, in terms of helping to solve the bias problem, that media consumers seek out differing viewpoints on the news, you know, he was actually calling for people to actively search out disinformation, especially when he said seek out the opposite. But isn't that exactly what Trudeau and the Digital Charter are trying to prevent? They don't want you to be exposed to opposite points of view, because that's really all that disinformation is. It begs the question, why does Trudeau refer to disinformation instead of referring to falsehoods or to lies? because he knows there's a difference, but he doesn't want that distinction made. This information does not necessarily imply that something's untrue or false. The prefix dis, as defined in the dictionary, makes this perfectly clear. Dis, one, away from, a part, as in disembody. Two, the reverse of, or the undoing of, what is expressed in the rest of the word, like disconnect. 3. Deprivation of some quality, power, or rank, etc., as in disable. It also means not, as in disloyal. So disinformation could simply be information that's off-topic. It could be merely intended to distract the focus of a given discussion. Disinformation could be true and valid facts that contradict those originally being considered. Remember, one does not discover truth in facts alone, but in the narrative, in the story, and we've talked about that a lot. Now, taken on its face value, fake news would be any reported events that prove not to be so. For example, an accident on the highway is reported on the news, but no such event actually occurred. But when it comes to commentary and opinion, is there such a thing as fake? Fake commentary? Fake opinion? That doesn't even make sense, except in one sense. For a commentary or expression of opinion to be fake, the person expressing it would have to be lying, both to himself and to us. For example, when a news commentator might say something like, I think Justin Trudeau is the best Prime Minister Canada ever had, but who really in his heart believes that Justin Trudeau is the worst Prime Minister, well then I suppose you could call that commentary fake. Problem is, you'd never know it unless you could read the mind of the commentator. So Trudeau's whole concept of a digital charter serves no legitimate purpose that would be functional in any attempt to address these issues and is therefore sinister in the extreme. Trudeau's message could easily have been mistaken for a quote from Orwell's 1984. He might as well set up a ministry of truth to decide what constitutes disinformation. But wait a minute, he's already done something quite similar in setting up a panel for this purpose. This is the panel charged with the responsibility to distribute the $600 million bribe the Trudeau Liberals have handed out 
to the media organizations to be liberal friendly in the reporting and the editorials. And among those appointed to the panel is representative of UNIFOR, the blatantly flamboyant anti-conservative labor union calling itself Andrew Scheer's worst nightmare. Just pause and think what Trudeau is doing. He has taken taxpayers' money, doled it out for media organization to be overseen by a panel of left-wing activists and ideologues, such as members of UNIFOR, to ensure liberal re-election and rely on the media to run a partisan smear campaign against the conservatives. Now here again is CKTB's Tom McConnell in conversation with reporter Grant LaFleche, as heard on May 23rd, and I think their discussion presents yet another dimension concerning this whole affair. Joining me in studio, St. Catherine Standard reporter Grant LaFleche, how are you? Good day, good day, good day. I want to start with something. Um, Yesterday was the announcement about what groups are going to help pass out money oh dear to yeah. canadian journalists now i don't expect you to do the homework on it i'm like well i need a parsing of all the groups no involved, I, I, but... I i yeah they're all the union and advocacy groups that they chose yeah yeah but um this is a tough one for newspapers hugely uh, tough and you know what though I, I don't know. Maybe our company as well will be like, eh, free money, we'll take it. Like a tax credit for <laughs> movies and television. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're going to help us pay for uh, developing a television show? Ah, we'll gladly take it. Yep. I, I I don't know. I think it was more intended, less for broadcasters and more for print journalists. It, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it's certainly... So, so I, I don't, I'm not sure if we're going to go out, but I can't say we're not going to go after yep. some money. How do you feel about it, though? Because I imagine uh, it's one of those ones where it's like, yeah... We could I, use a little money, but the I, I really, attached. I'm really torn. Um, I, I completely sympathize uh, because I don't disagree in, in necessarily with the assessment that you know, for a newspaper to best perform its function. Speaking as a newspaper man, it, it's always best that we stand alone, right? We right. we stand separate from the institutions that we cover. Um, you know, you will you, you used to hear uh, sometimes from the past regional council when they would complain, and you know the regional chair Kazan and so on would say, "Well, we want the media to be our partners." Well, we're not your partner in in no way, shape, or form. Are we the government's partner in anything? Nor are we the partner of the police. Nor are we the partner with the hospitals. That's not our function. So the idea of getting any kind of like, I guess the positive side is they're not just giving newspapers cash. Uh, it's a tax credit, so it sort of works out that way. But it still makes, I think it makes any journalist a little bit leery because you don't want to be on any kind of financial hook to an institution w- which you may be called upon to cover critically and investigate, which is our primary function. The flip side of that argument uh, is: Look, at we give auto break, we give breaks to the auto industry, we give breaks to uh, entertainment in terms of uh, film and and television. I mean, Absolutely. there's a reason Hollywood comes to Canada. There's a reason why we've established a credible screen industry, whether yes. it's TV or movies, is because of tax because credits. Because of tax credits, yes. And um, it, it's sort of when you when you think about the argument for sort of auto bailouts and the the argument for tourism bailouts and the argument for film and, and television tax credits and so on. It's always because it creates jobs and stimulates the economy and so on and so forth. And I think there's a very good argument to say, well, look at, uh, you know, newspapers are this f- vital pillar 
of a democratic society at the local level, provincial level, national level. Uh, and if they go, if you end up with, with more and more news deserts and more and more outlets close, democracy itself is imperiled. So having tax credits to allow these companies to, to do well or at least have a fighting chance, uh, especially in an environment where so many digital dollars are sucked up by Google and Facebook and we don't tax them and there are no limits on what Google and Facebook can do in terms of taking Canadian advertising away. There's no CRTC kind of ceiling to protect any of it like there is for broadcast. So it, it makes sense in that in that sense. So I'm completely divided straight down the middle on this because I don't want my newspaper um, to be on the hook for anything from from a government, for sure. On the other hand, you know, something has to be done. Uh, And sort of the environment in which we function has to be done. And tax credits seem about the most benign way to do it. Yeah, it's a... No one likes to be seen as being beholden. No. But this tension always exists in media, especially, you know, we're a company, we exist on advertising. Mm -hmm. That's it. I do not have money from the government a la the CBC. Who is one of my biggest competitors? Yes, right. A- yes, a- to and produce news and digital content online, which is not part of their mandate. Well, it's, it's even more absurd, right? Because they get government money. Money. So you're in direct competition with a news agency, which is funded by the public, which can then also go after commercial advertising dollars. In some regards, they do. Right. Yes. So you know whether it's whether it's Bell, which is you guys, or, or somebody else. You, you know, you're in direct competition with a company that gets both, and you can only get the. I've asked you to join me to confirm the fact that several years ago you had an affair with Senator Gordon Madison. What? No way, never happened. Certainly not. I'm disappointed at your lack of candor, my dear. I have in my possession a birth certificate which proves that seven years ago, back east, you secretly gave birth to a child out of wedlock. Now, wait a minute. After which, you immediately put the child, a daughter, up for adoption. What the hell is going on here, Dee Dee? My question, is the child Senator Madison's? No. Oh, really? I have two eyewitnesses who will swear that Senator Madison visited you not once, but several times during your confinement at St. Anne's home. Yes, that's true. Look, the baby was not the senator's. My mother worked for him as a housekeeper. When he found out what happened, he offered to help because that's just the kind of guy he is. He paid a few bills and helped find a home for the baby. I see. It's the truth. The baby's father was a boy I knew in school. Neither one of us was ready for marriage. Look, I know this is news. But does it have to come out? I mean, I made a mistake. But don't screw up the rest of my life. It's hardly my intention, my dear. The purpose of our lunch was to get the facts. Now that I have them, you have nothing to fear. And five, four, three, two... 
And we're back for another hour with Senator Gordon Madison, who, by his own admission, faces stiff opposition in his re-election bid this year. Senator, thank you for joining us on National Focus this evening. My pleasure, Fielding. I am delighted to have the opportunity to reach out to your many listeners, many of whom share my philosophy, I am sure. Many of them who don't. You may make some converts, but my people are a hard-headed lot. Yes, I was told you'd be calling. kindly Please hold. <laughs> well, I'd say they get precious little of that around here. Amen to that, my friend. And now back to the phones. This is Collier from Roanoke, Virginia. Mr. Chase? This is he. You're on the air with Senator Gordon Madison. Look, I gotta tell you, I'm not a real big fan of yours, Mr. Chase. Oh, thank you very much. And what else do you have to say besides displaying your ignorance? But that guy you got with you, that, that senator, he's a real piece of work. Hey, Senator. Yes, I'm here. When are you going to tell the world about that little adventure you had a few years back with, uh, what's her name at a movie star? Uh, Deidre Ross. What? Come on, man. Everybody knows she had your kid, then put it up for adoption. When was that? About, like, uh, seven years ago or so? Not really sure. Sir, this is a very serious allegation. St. Anne's home for unwed mothers, just across the state line. And don't tell me you don't know about it. Hell, man, I got witnesses. Look, this is absolutely untrue. I can explain about this. Explain? What are you saying, Senator? You know this woman, this actress? Well, yes, I knew her, but I... (laughs) Sir, this is a very grave accusation. You say you have proof? What kind of proof? Medical records, adoption papers, eyewitnesses. Look, this is total nonsense. I knew Miss Ross, of course. Her mother worked for me. She was only 17, man. 17. You ask me, guy like you ought to be strung up. Mr. Chase, I don't even understand why you have a low life like this on your program. Now that's what I would legitimately call fake news. That scenario where William Shatner plays a slimy talk show radio host who peddles fake news for political gain was taken from an episode of the TV series Columbo and serves as a great illustration of the kind of lies that should never reach public ears. The funny thing is that society already has in place remedies for dealing with that kind of situation, doesn't it? They generally take place in a court of law. No digital or even analog charters are required. We already have libel and slander laws. All that's necessary is their enforcement. And of course, a lot of damage can be done before the record is set straight, and the lie often travels much farther than the truth which corrects it. But courts attempt to adjust for these inequities through suitable penalties, costs, and compensation for damages caused. Not saying it's perfect, but it's a much better deterrent than vague government regulations. Whatever the problems inherent with this kind of fake news, that's an entirely different category than what's being talked about on the internet and on social media. And again, however one might categorize the incident at Christ Church in New Zealand, it wasn't fake news. It was sadly very real. And when we take a review of all the online bloggers and commentators who've been deplatformed, prohibited, or otherwise restricted for nothing more than their opposing points of view which according to Tom McConnell we should actually be seeking out, then we're talking about another category of content again, one entirely separate from the last two cited. I love this letter to the editor from Al Gretzky, who has been both a guest on the show and a contributor to the show. 
The heading on April 27th read, Fear of speaking truth helps terrors spread. And he writes, I quote, A Caucasian terrorist savagely murdered 50 innocent Muslims as they prayed peacefully in their mosque. The cry from around the world was swift and pointed. This is further proof of the rampant spread of Islamophobia in the Caucasian culture. On Easter Sunday, Muslim terrorists savagely murdered 200 Christians as they prayed peacefully in their churches. The cry from around the world was swift and pointed. Don't judge all Muslims by the actions of a few radicals. To do so would only confirm the rampant spread of Islamophobia. If there is truth to the claim that a small group of Muslim terrorists represent only themselves and not all Muslims in the world, it should be just as true that one Caucasian terrorist represents only himself and not all Caucasians in the world. Fear of speaking the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth will only help the spread of terrorism." End quote. How excellently worded, Al. Wonderfully done. What has happened to the Liberal Party of the great libertarian Sir Wilfred Laurier? What has happened to Walter's passionate appeal? I disagree of what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. How can any classical liberal tolerate such an outright assault on free speech? Indeed, the very success of liberal democracy over any other form of government in history is because the true and tried remedy for bigotry and racism in society is freedom of speech, constitutionally protected. After all the posturings regarding human rights, all the platitudes piled up in defending people from bigots and racists, Trudeau and his liberals barely comprehend the words of Liu Xiaobo, awarded the Nobel Prize for Peace for 2010, and who died as a prisoner of conscience in Chinese custody. Liu wrote, freedom of expression is the foundation of human rights, the source of humanity, and the mother of truth. To strangle freedom of speech is to trample on human rights, stifle humanity, and suppress truth. This is indeed what Trudeau is set upon doing. As someone who has publicly spoken in great admiration about the Chinese system of authoritarian rule that condemned Liu Xiaobo to die in communist prison. We need to be concerned about protecting our liberal democracy, which cannot function without freedom of speech. And for that matter, without an independent free press and an independent justice system. We cannot let such abuse of our cherished principles go unchallenged. We owe it to our children and grandchildren to leave behind us a free country in which the God-given rights are respected and protected. And of course, the truth can only surface in an environment of free speech, speech utterly free from the punishments or rewards of governments. And here's the catch-22 of, of this whole situation. Governments and politicians already have the freedom to speak themselves and can use that freedom of speech to openly counter any quote-unquote fake news or disinformation they don't like. Just speak up, for heaven's sakes. Disinform us. 
But no, instead they choose to censor the voices of others, the very others necessary to creating a debate where differing points of view, disinformation, are made available to the public, which itself gets to decide the truth of the matter. And that's it for this week, so be sure to join us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Oh, speaking of the Messiah, I really like Barack Obama. I love... I do, yeah. Yeah, I love Barack Obama. I do, I love him. I voted for him like three times. And I know some people don't like Obama, and you know, they have the the right to be racist. But... I really, I love Obama.